Hey, welcome to The Screenwriting Life. I'm Meg LaFove. And I'm Lorianne McKenna. We are professional screenwriters. We've worked together as a team and separately. We've worked on studio and indie films, live action and animation, from my work on Inside Out and Captain Marvel. To my work in Pixar's story department on Up, Brave, and Inside Out. We are here to share our insights on the craft of screenwriting and also the life. How to not only survive the ups and downs, but thrive. We want to help you become the best screenwriter you can be and to reassure you that you are not alone on this journey. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Today, we are chatting with Monique Matthews, whose film A Holiday in Harlem airs tonight, people, tonight, Sunday, 8 p.m. on Hallmark. So excited. Um, so excited. <laughs> um, so Monique is passionate about identifying your story and unpacking how to tell it in the right way and elegantly fostering inclusive storytelling and character in our work. So welcome. Welcome, Monique. Welcome. I'm so happy to be here. This is awesome. Can we also plug you as a screenwriting teacher? I mean, you did it for yes, years, I right? Love is that, that. all right? Because yes. yes. I want to talk about yes. that too. It's an important part of it. I mean, it, you learn so much about audience and, and voice and it's one of those things where, you know, Meg was my first teacher uh, at UCLA Film School. And we talked a lot about voice and being authentic. And it's, you know, it's like that, the, the saying, when you are ready to, um, wait, what is the saying? When you learn, <laughs> when the teacher is ready, the student will appear. Yeah. And it's like when, the, when you're ready, your students will actually appear. So there's so much that you need to learn just in terms of communication. I'm so grateful to be a professor at Santa Monica College. Like, and you're still so, doing it. You're still doing it. I'm not doing it this semester because we were, we were shooting. you were busy making a movie, but yeah, you're still we on faculty there. Okay, well, let's talk because I can't yes. wait to hear about your week. So I'm going to jump us over to, first, before we talk about all of uh, the fabulous things you want to talk about, Monique, we're going to do what we call adventures in screenwriting. Uh, and we're going to start with Lorian. So Monique, you can, you can get a taste of it. Uh, Lorian, how was your week? Uh, good, I think. As always, I get to Friday and I'm like, I don't know what happened. I had all these notes. Um, I worked on a pitch most of the week. Um, and what I'm noticing about my process, aside from all the fear and running away and, you know, it's not working, is that I have this sense of time pressure always sort of like hanging over my head. Like, some maybe, you know, when I was a kid and like I finished early, I got some positive reinforcement for it or something. I don't know. But anytime I'm working on a project um, I that is not paid, right? Because I have those uh, deadlines are already set for me. So I know exactly what I'm doing. But if I'm writing my own script, I talked about this before. I guess it was last year when I wrote another script that I just feel this pressure to get it done. And what I'm cheating myself is the time to do the work, right? And, and the exploration and the curious paths yeah. that take you down crazy roads because your brain is going, get back, you have to hurry, you have to hurry. But yeah. meanwhile, and you could if it be doesn't missing the whole thing. And if it doesn't work right away, and by right away, I literally mean like in an hour. Like if it doesn't work or I don't see it, I feel like, oh, I got to give up. It's broken. It's not working. Instead of staying in it, which for me still is really, really hard. Right. And, um, can we talk about the fact that I text you texted me? You, yes. I was like, okay, Lori, until one o'clock, <laughs> just pick a lane. It's like 10 o'clock right now. So pick a lane for three hours and just stay in it and write it, write that version. This is a version that's yes. just for three hours. And then I get a text at one o'clock. Well, I did it and none of it works. And it's all like, it was just like, throw it out. And I was like, oh my God, your poor muse, Her, your poor muse. You got, she got three hours. That's all she right. got. And now you're like, I'm done. It's all, it's all done. Right. So it's, it's hard for me, you know, which is so different. And it, it's separated into two categories, right? There's the stuff I'm doing on like a pitch or something I'm writing on my own. But if it's paid work, I don't have that problem because there's that sort of external deadline, that external pressure. So like, and it's not so much about disappointment. Like I'm not worried about disappointing execs or producers. Like I have to deliver the work because it's my job. But I, I don't know what this is. Like, but I have to get through it right? I have to be able to produce more, to spend more time in my own lava, I guess it is. And the it, it's like layers of lava, right? There's the layer of the lava of um, getting close to my story I want to tell, but also 
the process and what that means, you know, pushing through those barriers. So yeah, I, but you must have, you must have had that with your students too, with yourself, I would assume, because uh, every writer has it at some level. But do you ever have advice for your students about that when they're procrastinating or throwing stuff out too quickly or all that stuff we do? Well, one of the things I do, I mean, three hours is a long time for me. So I give them, I just tell them to set their timer for like 50 minute increments. And then I literally like we 10 minutes and get up and walk away. Like I do that so that I am, um, you know, working my kinesthetic muscles and I completely forgetting um, the anxiety attached to needing to perform or needing to get the story out. And uh, that that's pretty much what I do. Like I, it's kind of similar to Meg, but I make the time shorter. And sometimes if it's really, (laughs) I'll I'll often find that um, there's the critic, right? That you're talking about. And then there's the muse. And I just refuse to let the Virgo, the critic, the Virgo go while me, the Pisces is, is, is just musing. Like the Pisces is all about the muse. So I just kind of just separated. It's like, you can't talk right now. You'll have a time to talk. And what I do with that is if my critic is really, if she needs to really get her opinion heard, then I'll journal. Like instead of even verbalizing it, um, I'll just say what she's what she's thinking and then I'll look at it and there's a difference when you're looking at it and like, eh, maybe, maybe not. And if I oh, throw it away, good. that's what I ended up doing I yesterday. That. I had like a word or pages, whatever the program is now. I don't know. And I was writing and like, okay, what if the character did this? And I'd be like, I don't think that works. Why doesn't that work? Okay. It was literally just everything I was thinking I was writing down so that it didn't stay in my head. Right. Because that's where you get into the trap where I get into the trap. Right. And then it's just a lot of negative stuff. So I was writing it. Okay. That doesn't work. Okay. What could work? Okay. I hate that. That doesn't work. Why do I hate that? Like I was, so my document is 18 pages long of story beats and like the self-talk and, you know, the bigger process. So it's sort of, you know, one day I'll publish it. You can all be witness oh my God, I to the glory wait. of this document. I actually, I don't listen to the critic. Like she gets it. She, I can write it out. Um, and I got this from the artist way by Julia Cameron years ago, where you do the stream of consciousness writing. And once I started getting that out and not reviewing what it said, it actually helped me separate from, from the critic because the critic has wonderful things to say, but the critic can't always talk. And the, the problem is, is the critic really wants to protect us, right? Critic doesn't want us to get hurt. And one of the things that I do as a screenwriting professor is really encourage mistakes, right? We write these characters who go on these journeys who make all the wrong decisions, but it's about their intent. If their heart is in the right place, will go with them through every 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 bad decision that they make. And so I try to give myself that license and I tell my students to be okay with making the mistakes. Um, so that's that's one of the, the, the ways I try to nurture my, um, my, my artists and have my students nurture theirs is let's be okay with mistakes. Let's normalize them because it's, it's okay, we're human. So what you're talking it. about, right? So even just listening to you talk just now, I got a little emotional right? Is that I don't have a nurturing practice enough to feel safe enough with myself to write, I think Mm. sometimes. And so what you're talking about is practice, right? You know how to do this, you know how to do this. Like you've, it's intellectual, it's emotional, it's physical. You've been able to incorporate all these pieces in your practice and in your teaching, which I think is a gift to your students. And I still feel very uh, scattershot, you know, sometimes very panic writing, you know, everything has this sense of panic. And I would like to get where, what you're talking about, this sort of, I'm going to say it again, practice of it, right? Because that feels like, well, it feels like a little more control, right? Which is what I desperately want. Um, but uh, yeah, so maybe I'll sign up for your class. <laughs> yeah, we can't, I can't wait to talk about this. We're going to such a deep dive on this. Yes, but sorry. Monique, first, I want you to tell us about your week. Sure. This week I've done three things. One, I got, I got my booster shot. I'm over here. I got my booster. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. The second thing I did, um, second thing I have, um, I am co-writing and directing my first documentary feature. We're starting in December. So I'm thrilled about that. It's called birthing justice. And I'm not sure if you're aware, but 
let's say the United States was just comprised of black women, right? And when black women give birth, the United States would be actually be 99th in the world for successful birth outcomes. Like there's a serious problem with successful birth for black women and children. Um, we've seen this with Serena Williams. We've seen this with Beyonce. So I was just, I'm, I'm thrilled that um, I'll be directing that project. So we begin in December. So for this week, I've been doing research on some of my favorite documentaries, um, storytelling techniques. Uh, so that's the creative side of me. The other side is um, really just being excited and about the film. Uh, Holiday in Harlem premiering on Sunday and engage, uh, yay, engaging with the audience, right? Because it's the, the thrill that as a writer and as a, as a feature, I've written features for the majority of my career. You don't necessarily talk with people. You don't necessarily see the audience. And right. one of the great things about social media is that people really want to know writers and they really want to engage with writers. And a lot of times, um, when we interact with executives or, um, and, and nothing against executives or producers or other creatives, we, we hear a lot about how the writer isn't, you know, the writer is expendable once the script is done or and this. And there's a whole audience who just wants, they have a story to tell and they want to know how you told the, yours so you can tell, how you told yours so they can tell theirs, which you guys do so much encouraging of in this podcast. So I've been doing a lot of just social media engagement and promos and sharing the why. The why is always really, really important in terms of why we do anything, right? Um, I remember Meg, I'm gonna probably be deferring to you a lot of <laughs> when we would be in class and it would just be like, so why, so why, so why? And it's like, oh, and then when you, and you get to the heart of, you start un un unleashing things and so, that's the third thing I've been doing. And it's been great. Like people love writers. Surprise, surprise. I love it. I love it. Hooray. Awesome. Hooray. I love that. Awesome. All right, we're going to add Jeff to our week today because uh, he had an eventful week. So Jeff, how was your week? I did. I've had a really great week as well. Um, and I want to quickly, Lauren, I want to say thank you for sharing what you just shared. I felt very seen by that. And um, it made me think because I've been having the same issue. I feel like if I've, and here's my theory, and you can take it or leave it, but if I'm doing something that I feel like has been knighted by someone else, it's like, it's like I have the validity to do it. Like someone else told me I'm good enough to do this thing. So for yeah, your yeah. paid work, maybe you have something subconscious where you're like, well, they told me I can do it, so I can. Whereas when it's your own, you don't have that. And I've, I'm only sharing that because I think I just realized that's the shit that I'm dealing with. So just that's two cents that I'm thinking about. We need to get to a place where we feel like we can knight ourselves to honor our own work. Um, so yeah, that's just a thought that. that I just had. Love it. Um, the thing that I'm really excited about this week that's wild is this show continues to just give me these profound gifts. And I reached out to our Facebook group and I'm in edit on a feature that I directed this summer. And I was like, I just need cold eyes, partic like particularly from an editor, if you'd want to take a look. And a number of amazing people responded. So I want to say thanks to everyone that responded. But in particular, we had a, I got a very humble message from someone that was like, hey, I've done some editing. I'd be happy to take a look. I go to her IMDb. She's edited 72 features, I, like, including a studio comedy. I'm going to keep her anonymous because yeah, she wanted yeah. to. And I don't yeah, want her to get hounded by people. No, no, no. Yeah. But a, a studio comedy that I consider one of the best of the century. Like, I know that sounds like a big exaggeration, but I, what I would say is a really important star-making studio comedy she edited. And um, she's like, sure, I'll take a look. She watched it day of and just sent me 14 pages of brilliant edit notes for nothing besides wanting to mentor a writer. So I'm like so overwhelmed by how unreasonably generous that is. Um, but it was a very interesting moment. I reached out to her and said, would you mind if I shared the story I can use your name. I cannot use your name. And the main reason she wanted to stay anonymous was because she's like, if you have really kind words to say for me, I don't want someone to go to my IMDb and be underwhelmed by my resume. And of course, my reaction was like, what? I'm like such a, a woman. I'm sorry. I know I'm such a females are taught this. This is ingrained. I love her. I don't even know who you're talking about because you haven't told me either. This is so Ugh, you're, you're amazing. You're, uh, I know. You're, look at this. I mean, come on. Oh my God. Amazing. Well, and that was my reaction was like, I look at your career as like a dream career. Like you are a highly respected. She, she like her name gets mentioned among some of the greats of our business. 
And it was just such an interesting moment. Why don't we allow ourselves the joy of our success? Like to me, she's a true working editor. She's an above the line creative who's made a living editing made for TV movies, studio features. And it was just such a reminder of like, we all do this. And it's such a disappointment because it's such a waste of joy. So um, I hope that's okay. I'm going to share this with her to make sure she's okay with me telling that story too, just because I view her as like a God. So it surprises me that she doesn't. It was just a really interesting, important moment, I think. I know that like when I first as a writer went to the Sundance Lab, I think I had it in my head that they were going to knight me. And then of course, that's not what happened because you get notes, by the way. Like, it's not like, it's not all dancing around the fire. Like you get notes from like heavy hitters. So you come down off the mountain a little bit like, oh my God, right? And inspired, but also it's not a knighting. Let's just put it that way. Um, Now, later in my career, it's a little bit reversed where if I can go do my own thing, it's not that I think I'm so great, but I'm like, oh, how I can just do whatever I want. And nobody has to tell me what I need to do. And I can just go wander around. And I still have that voice, of course. But when I now have to do something, because I'm always, always pushing myself to do like something more challenging for myself. <laughs> as soon as they're like, okay, you can do it. Part of me is like, oh no, oh no, I can't do this. What was I doing? Why did I say <laughs> I could do this? What was I thinking? What was I thinking that I could do this? I immediately spiral into that immediately. So it just, just look forward, Jeff, that it'll reverse. It'll go backwards. It'll go forward. Sometimes it'll be in your passion project. Sometimes it won't. Right. But, well, um, I, I want to tactfully say, I hope it's okay for me to share that story. It's not at all me discrediting her. It's me saying what a relatable moment for someone yeah, who I ask view. her. Ask her I'll how ask she feels her. about it. Yeah. I will. Um, but I was just kind of a gift for me to see that even the great struggle with that too, in a way. So, yeah. And then, okay, I'm going to do my week quickly so we can get to our guest because I can't wait. Um, so last show, I was talking about how I felt I didn't need to ground under my feet on, on a project that I was feeling a little um, uh, untethered. And I realized as, as this week has go on, gone on that it, I didn't have ground under my feet because I was in the river. And I know, I know you guys tease me about metaphors, but this one is actually appropriate. I was looking for ground under my feet, but when you're in the creative river, there is no ground under your feet because you're in the river and you're bouncing around with the waves and, and, and the ripples. And it was so rushing. I guess I, I mean this in a good way. The tap to my creativity was on. It didn't mean that I had an answer. The answer kind of is the ground coming under your feet, right? And it just feels so uncomfortable. It it feel when the tap is on and the creative the creativity's rushing through you, but you don't have an answer yet, it can feel like anxiety. It can feel like something's wrong. But in fact, like somebody told me once, your nervous system does not know the difference between excitement and fear. It's the same things shooting off. And I realized this week, and this is how I realized it. Because the, the tap was on because all of a sudden, as I'm trying to work out this issue in, in, this, in the script I'm working on, and it's, I can't figure it out and it's not coming and then half a piece comes and then it falls away. And, but again, it's that I'm in the river and it's rushing around me. It's throwing out different things. All of a sudden, new ideas started coming to me about other projects. Like, like I have always had this half of an idea and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, drinking my eating my gingerbread man, as you all know from the Facebook page, this whole other piece to this other movie that I've had in my head arrived. And I was like, oh my God, that's a movie. Why is this arriving right now? What's happening? You know, like literally, and all of a sudden I'm, I'm literally having ideas about, you know, the Patreon project, you know, what we could do is I could take that idea that just came to me while I was eating the gingerbread cookie man. And I could put it up on the Patreon site and we could literally just watch it develop over time and see what happens to it. Like it was this rush of, of creativity and thought that's going because the tap is on. I'm in the river, it's happening. Now the discipline is to not go off on that tributary of those new ideas. Kind of like you said, Monique, write them down so that my mind sees they're caught, you've got them, but you the, here's the discipline when you're in that river to go back, to go back. You're in the river, you're bouncing along, the tap's open, don't divert, go back to what it was you were trying to work on. Stay there, stay there. I kind of did what you were talking about, Lauren. I started writing down my questions and answering them on the page, writing a huge documents. I'm, I'm <laughs> literally like 
so many questions and then literally answers. And I just started throwing out crazy answers like, well, okay, in a perfect world, if I could change everything, I would do this. And suddenly I was like, well, can I do that? I could kind of do that. Do I have to change everything to do that? No, I actually don't think I do. But I didn't get there until I let the river flow through me. The more I tried to have an answer and stop the river, the less I was in the river, the less I was just bouncing all over the place. But as soon as I kind of went with the flow of it and said, okay, I'm in the river, I don't know. I'm just going to start writing stuff down and I'm going to start asking myself questions. It's now flowing. It's flowing. It's going. And it's bringing me now a little bit closer to shore, right? It's bringing me a life preserver, whatever this is. I don't know yet, people, because I have to keep working it out. But I got something. I literally got something. And I was like, oh, that's what it is. This is what it is. Within 24 hours, I was bumping around again within that because now within that, there's another question. And I think I figured out that this morning, which is why I was late to this podcast because I was like, wait, I think that might be it. But again, I'm flowing with it. I'm trying not to stop it. I'm just letting it because it's going to bring me an answer if I just keep asking questions. And I think sometimes when you don't write at all, this flow can get backed up like brackish water. And it can make you really unhappy to the point that you're grumpy with everybody, right? Because the, the tap is on people. You've chosen to be a writer. You've chosen to be at the sacred job of a creator. It can be on full blast like it is for me right now. And I don't know why. Maybe it's just because I'm doing so much work and so much work every day that the tap is just full blast and it's uncomfortable. It's so it's coming so fast. It's actually uncomfortable. Um, and sometimes I'm like, you know what? I need to go watch a movie, an ensemble movie. That's what I need to do. And in a way, I think my brain's trying to calm it down a little bit and bring in my analytical brain just for a moment because the tap is so strong. Again, I'm not talking about the tap is so strong. Like I'm a genius and I have all the answers. That is not what's happening. <laughs> when this river's going, it is not all about the answers. I don't have any answers, but there's ideas coming in. There's ideas coming in. So I just wanted to bring that up in terms of, you know, think of it like a river you have to get into and it will be uncomfortable. That is part of the ride of being a storyteller. Sometimes you're going to be able to get to the bank and you're going to have ground under your feet and it's going to be great. And sometimes out of nowhere, you're back in the river and you're just bumping along. So it's really just about, I think the key to this, and it's a lot, a key to what you guys are talking about, both Monique and Jeff and Lorian, the key to staying in the river with focus, right? Staying on your project, not diverting is self-compassion, I think. And it, it really is about having compassion for yourself that, oh my God, I just walked away from the river. It was too much. Or, oh my God, I diverted for freaking four hours on a totally different project. I have self-compassion for that. That self-compassion is the door back into the river. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, okay, go back in. The more you beat yourself up, that is not the part of your brain that creates that beat up inner critic. Like when you were talking, Monique, the inner critic needs to be heard because it is trying to protect you, but it doesn't create anything. It's not the creator. So I want you to get back into the river. I want you to be in the river. If you're in the river every day, even just 20 minutes, I can't even tell you how much that the, the muses will be like, well, she wants to swim. So here she goes. It'll just turn it on. So that was my week that I wanted to share with you because it was kind of revelatory for me that I've been thinking about it as a whole context in the wrong way. That as if, well, if I was a good writer, I have ground under my feet and I'd know these answers and it wouldn't feel this way. I don't think that's actually how it works. I think it feels this way. This is how it feels. I don't know. Go ahead. It's so funny. I, oh, sorry. I Real quick, I called a writer friend yesterday morning and I was like, well, I don't think I'm a writer because this feels so bad, right? Being in the river, like maybe I'm just a producer. Right. Not just, but like, maybe that's what I should focus on because this feels so bad. And then, you know, in the afternoon, I actually got some, I climbed over to the bank and I was like, aha, I got it. But it took like a long time, but I definitely had that feeling of like, well, th this is hard. It feels terrible. That's why writers, like, pro writers are like, if you can do anything else, do it. This is why, <laughs> because it's hard to bump along in that rushing river. And there can be rapids, man, where your head is getting clocked against rocks, but this yeah. is just the universe. It's just yeah. pushing it down. Go ahead, Monique, go. So when you were saying that, before we move on, there was just two points. One, and it's what you both were talking about, to embrace the discomfort. Like, I try every day for 10 minutes to do something that's really uncomfortable. For me, that's working out a lot. <laughs> um, I embrace the discomfort, even if it's just 15 to 20 minutes a day. And the second thing that I tell my students that's really helpful for them and for me is I don't finish that final scene. Like you, the critic is stunted when you say, when you get to that scene and you're like, okay, I got, I got five more minutes before this is up. And you just say next time. 
Cause then you're like, you have to get back to finish that scene. And the critic is like, ah, I can't talk right now because the scene isn't finished yet. So I would say to, to stop yeah, awesome. right before you finish that, the end of that scene, cause it makes you want to come back. Like, but when you're spent and you're like, ah, then you're spent and you got to get back up again. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you can be tired. The river can have knocked you around and even getting back in that river can be tiring physically. Like sometimes my kids are like, why are you so tired at the end of the day? Like you're sitting around, like you're not doing anything physical. And I'm like, I'm so tired, physically tired. Uh, because you are in this river getting bumped around and that river can be your writing and that sacred creativity pouring in that river can be working with other people and how how do you you know all of that stuff that you have to do as a writer um in terms of the collaboration it can be a lot of things but um all right now all about Monique yay we're getting to the to the good stuff now uh Monique we always have to ask because our our a lot of our listeners are so interested and in how did you break into the business break in after 20 years um well <laughs> it's a pretty interesting story um i went to ucla film school in the producing program about 20 years ago as a writer which i think is one of the most important things to do it actually speaks to what i do in my in my classes um is that you have to do your due diligence and you should know about the business of show before you're just writing like it's great to write but it's really great to understand audience and the business of show is an audience so i did that i had really quick um success it seemed like i was this great rising star um a lot i was on the cover of um filmmaker magazine i daily variety 10 writers to watch i did film independence independent director and the writer's lab. So everything was going really, really great. And then we had the uh, Writers Guild strike of 2007 and the business model shifted from features to TV. And I had, and there was another, there was other sets of perfect storms in my life. Um, my grandmother was sick, I had to take care of her, just like everything kind of merged into one. And I had to figure out what the next step was while I can keep writing. And I was just really fortunate enough to um, start teaching and teaching has been a trade for me. I've been teaching since I was 13 and reading is fundamental um, at St. Aloysius School growing up in Harlem, New York. So I just, I went there and I, and I just really wanted to focus on the craft, work on the craft. And, you know, when you are in the, in the mix and you see everyone who's around you and people peak at different times. So a lot of it is just, staying in being just uncomfortable when it seems like everyone around you is being really successful um and you're not or it doesn't look that way but it's just everyone has their own story to tell and i just kind of just kept staying in it and one of the things in terms of embracing the discomfort i um i had a general uh like uh let's a general meeting in january 2020 and I was like, oh, I need to pitch something. And so I went and I pitched this Christmas movie and it was the best no I got. And I don't think we take into account no's because every no is not the same no. There are different reasons people say no. And so I went to this Writers Guild event. There was a, um, it, was a, it was a special event. And so I saw my writer friends and I was like, hey, I just got the best no I've gotten in a long time. And one of my friends was on the panel. His name is Charles Murray. He um, has a he has a new he has a new television show coming out, coming out on Netflix on the twenty fourth with uh, Wesley Snipes and Kevin Hart. So he's like a really big EP. And I just started telling him about the Christmas movie, and he just got on his phone and he called the producer. And literally, <laughs> that's how um, what was Christmas in Harlem now Holiday in Harlem started. It was really just. Hey, I got the snow, but let me tell you about the snow. The well, why snow, was it a good no? Tell, tell us, why was it a good yes, no? Yes, because I can tell the exec um, really wanted it, but she could, She was really, um, I would say, specific about why she couldn't do it at this particular time, how it would make sense for her. She also talked about when it might make sense, why she, that she wasn't sure it could happen at that particular time. And, you know, like she was, she actually referred me to another producer with um, their network for a different project. So I knew she was invested in me. I knew she liked what I had to say. And I got just from talking to her like, wow, she's really, she likes this. And it, it was, this is an executive who it, she rescheduled like three or four times. So if we're in our writer's mind, we could think, oh, she's rescheduled. She doesn't want it. And it's a lot of things that happen in our mind that may not necessarily be reality. 
And when, um, and then, so what happened is I actually got into pretty much a bidding war between two networks for it. Uh, and she liked it, the pandemic happened. And then I kind of, um, Hallmark got interested in it. And so I kind of told her, hey, Hallmark is interested. And she really likes the producers who um, are ultimately doing it. Um, and Michael, Michael Goldman and um, Alex Costas, and she really liked them and they've done great work for the networks. And it, it just didn't happen because at that time it was the pandemic and things weren't being greenlit. So it's a lot of it is timing. A lot of it is really learning to discern between what's in your mind about why someone says no and when if they can give you notes. Like you can tell when somebody's just dis disinterested and really like, oh, this was a great no. So that's how. Well, I love that you also knew how to, and I'm not saying you intentionally were quote unquote selling it, but your enthusiasm to him of, I got a great no. I think she's interested. Like it's so positive. It's so um, passionate that of course I would want to help you too, because I'd be like, oh my God, you got a great no. How, that's such an interesting concept. What I would so lean in, it makes yeah. me lean in versus walking up to your mentor or this friend and saying, well, yeah, I got another no. And I'm really despondent. Again, bring all that stuff here to screenwriting life. That's all the real stuff. I get that disappointment and despondence. <laughs> but when you're at the party, right? You know, I don't know if that's what you lead with necessarily, right? Right. I mean, I that's what we talk about all the time, putting yourself out there. It's right. how you put yourself out there, right? Like, and it's a risk too, to be excited about something and pitch a story, you know, and, and it just hit at the right moment. That's a great story. Monique, were you, did you have a pitch or by that point you had a script? So here's the thing, when it happens, you don't know how it's going to happen because I just had a two pager and the two pager was enough for two networks to get involved. And I've written all of these scripts. I've done all these different drafts, but kind of when there's an idea and it's time for it to go, you just, you just don't know. So the, um, Charles Murray called, um, Michael Goldman and they, he was in, um, he was in Ireland. So, and then the pandemic hit. And so I just thought that I wasn't going to hear from him. Like I just, you know, whatever. And then he was like, you know, just hold off. Cause it's going to be no, like one of the things that you know, and when you're learning to be a producer is this, this no, 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 until it's yes. And then it's, it's that hurry up and wait thing. And then, so um, we were still going back and forth between, you know, Hallmark and, and the other network. And then, you know, Hallmark just stepped in in March and was like, Hey, we really like this. We want to make it. They paid me for the treatment. Then they were like, they saw the treatment. Hey, we want to make this. So they paid me for the draft. And then by June, we had a finished draft. We were casting in, in August. I was on a plane headed to Connecticut to film it. Like, holy smokes. So, so you really got to sad. be, did you get to be on set the whole time? Yes, it was great. I got to do um, one week of pre-production and see what happened with, you know, the, um, what was PR doing, how they were promoting the movie, um, meet with all the different departments, um, see how everyone else was telling the story. I was really fascinated with the costume designers and how costume designers tell the story through costume design. That, that's a fast, that's just really fascinating for me. So I did that. And then, um, you know, I was, I was on set, like just the whole time. And just, you know, I was, I made myself available um, to just, if there's something that the writer is, I mean, that the actors are tripping off of um, a line that's being said, or, you know, just, just stuff like that. But the producers and the, the network, they really invested in me. They really invested because they really wanted to tell an authentic story. And if it's a holiday in Harlem about this girl who comes back to Harlem after years of being away, that's kind of my story and how everything started. And so um, I just, I really found that Hallmark was really, and my executive, Samantha DeBeppo, she was just, she's just like great of just really wanting it to be authentic. Hallmark has a spe very specific form that works. We want to talk about that. We got a lot of questions on our, okay. on our Facebook page mm -hmm. about Hallmark and what is that development process like? You know, uh, Peter was asking about, we've heard about there's a list of story elements or quote unquote rules or however we want to talk about that. How do you have creative freedom inside of that? Yeah, so there are <laughs> there are several things that you have to know writing a Hallmark film. One is that the old studio system is alive and well. There are two old studio systems, I think, in Hallmark and Marvel. I was really understood the Marvel world of the executives, choose the writer and director. And I think if you like, like 
writing, directing, and, and editing and, and marketing, you probably want to be a Hallmark exec. I think they have like the coolest job on the planet because they're there from idea all the way down to, you know, release. So it's it's really, I'm like, wow, I didn't know that this was the old studio system. But yeah, they, they do casting, they do everything. So um, there are certain things that they told me. Uh, one is... You have to, and, and you find some people love Hallmark films and it's like, well, why do they love them? Some people are like, ah, but the people who love Hallmark movies, they love them. And one of the reasons is that there is always an exchange. There must be exchange between the two love interests. It can't just be they're really cute and they're lonely. It's what do these people have to teach each other um, personally slash professionally as a couple, and then also as a community, like Hallmark is really invested in, in the world within that becoming a better place because these two people are together. So it's not just about lonely people connecting. It's really, what, what are the gifts? How do you, how do, how do you how, what are you teaching and learning from one another? It was really important. And the second thing was, um, you know, the women, female protagonists are generally successful, but they don't need a man to complete them. <laughs> They cannot leave their job for a man. Like if they leave their job, it must be for something else. And it just kind of works out with the guy. And it's the best situation that love kind of enhances what you're already doing, but not that love completes you. You know, it's not the Jerry Maguire, you, you completely. It's like, my life is enhanced and I'm going to the next level because of the union that we formed. So it, it, it might seem like, and you have to, it's the, the subtlety of enhancing versus completing. Like that's, that's really important. Um, the second thing I learned, and that was just me as a writer that I picked up. And it's like, these are the hallmark things that I've learned. And I'm so grateful for this experience that I can, that I can apply to life. One is to have the uncomfortable conversation. Too many times in our, in our lives, we let relationships fall apart, we leave jobs, all because we won't have an uncomfortable, difficult conversation. And in these films, everybody has an uncomfortable conversation. The second thing I learned personally was be kind, especially when it's difficult. So it's not that there isn't conflict in a Hallmark movie, it's that even through the conflict, there's a level of human respect that, uh, the characters, the people have to have with one another. That's really important. And the third thing um, is that people are not their bad decisions, right? There are no bad people. <laughs> there are no serial killers in a Hallmark film. There are no bad people, but everyone makes mistakes. And just through that process of writing, I realized how, um, you know, judgmental, how much I felt I needed to protect myself and protect my characters. And so that was a learning curve, but it was a, I think it was a great learning curve. So I, I love that. I love that. And I am a big fan of Hallmark movies. They are my sort of uh, the place I go when I, things get overwhelming, yeah. right? Um, and it's a lot of what you are talking about, right? That, that our simple exchange, our kindness, our love changes the community, right? It, everything enhances. So it feels safe. It feels like I want to go there. Um, and I know Hallmark has been through a huge change over the, the years, right? Like it used to be the, the main character would choose between profession and love, right? And now I know that's, that's not happening now. But I wonder too, how do you, uh, Josh asked this question, how do you approach writing storylines or characters that culturally challenge the status quo? Like queer characters or people of color that we don't see a lot in, in the movies. Like, how do you, how do you approach that? Okay. So the producer from the producers program in me, as soon as I found that uh, Wanya Lewis became the um, CEO of Hallmark last August, a uh, black woman, she ran PBS Atlanta before that she did, she ran TV one, the weather channel. And I was like, Oh my gosh, this means Hallmark is going to be doing this, you know, inclusive storytelling. And he's just like, yes, Let's just see how, you know, things kind of develop. And so the producer was like, yes, full throttle. What I found is that the system was already in place. Like there was, my, again, my, my executive, Samantha uh, DeBeppo, she just, she just knew a lot about the world. And she was, she was just really like, how can this be authentic? It's, 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 it's great, you know, we, if, it, if it happens in Harlem, but what would the Harlem story look like? And so 
one of the, the, the changes that happened under um, our new leadership, the uh, um, Wanya Lewis's new leadership, was something that I think Hallmark had been moving to, where it is how can you be authentic and encourage the authenticity within this world? So I found it was in Harlem, like let's lean into the Harlem Renaissance. So I got to do some spoken words. So I, I've been a spoken word artist, so I created the poetry. Um, and there were odes to Langston Hughes, who's my absolute favorite. Um, there's also hip hop in this. Um, there's like, and, and one of the things that um, I got a lot of notes about was I personally, I will always big up Harlem for chicken and waffles because chicken and waffles is like popular all around the world, Japan and everywhere else. But it started at a place called Wells Restaurant in Central Harlem on 137, 132nd Street and now Adam Clayton Boulevard or 7th Avenue. So it's something that I always say, yes, chicken and waffles started here. And so Samantha was like, yeah, but there's a lot of great food. And I was like, it is. And I actually use that to develop it into a plot point um, where we, we, let's bring in all the food. Let's bring in, because it seems like Harlem is just black, but when you break down what black is, it's, it's, it's a lot of different types of community within that. You know, you have Caribbean Americans and even within Caribbean Americans, you have Haitian Americans, you have, um, you know, Jamaican Americans, you have, I'm from, I'm from St. Croix, the U.S. Virgin Islands. So you have, um, you have us, then you have, you know, African Americans from the South, you have, I mean, and then, and then you have just such a growing um, Spanish population of Dominicans and Puerto Ricans. And, and it's just like, let's just bring all of that because that's all authentically Harlem right now. And that came from Hallmark. The Hallmark is like, is let's let's see what what all is there. So, and then I, I originally the way I wrote the script, I wanted to make sure I had inclusion. So I had this, um, I had a LGBT couple, and uh, there were different decisions by the director made in ter in terms of casting. However, it was you know that wasn't a big deal with Hallmark. So it was like all these preconceptions of what I thought it would be, and then I got in the world and was like, oh. I was very gratefully surprised. Like, and then, I mean, I, and now also really, I would really encourage people to do your due diligence, understand like watch, watch a network or watch a TV show or if it's a streamer, who are they advertising to? Like, you have to know the audience. Like, it's really important because you can have these conceptions about what you think it is. And then when you're like, oh, so the audience is actually this particular age, not just who likes it, but who, who are the advertisers targeting? So then you get, a, you get a really clear understanding of that. And, you know, actually see, like there are some, there were some, there were some other issues that I was like, you know, well, I heard that Hallmark hasn't been inclusive to you know women it hasn't been well black women or women of color or the lgbt community and it's like i need to actually see that for myself i can't and and if that proves to be true then okay but i can't make the assumption because i'm afraid that i'm going to get hurt or they're going to reject me in some way and be defensive about that again i have to be willing to go into the discomfort and i was really wonderfully surprised like i just I, they, hallmark isn't great see i love hallmark even more <laughs> well, Michelle, really Michelle asked on the Facebook page, are you going to do it again? Are you going to? Uh... I mean, if they, yeah, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll see. Like, but, um, <laughs> it's going really well. So we'll, we'll see. That'd be awesome. Let's get into talking about that. Go ahead. No, go uh, ahead. In terms of we'll see, because as a writer, when one project is done, you get, like you said, Meg, you get all those immediate other projects that are happening. And for, for everyone listening about a Hallmark film or these Christmas movies happening, I really see Christmas movies much like uh, a medium, like much like animation is, where it's like, what story, what would Romeo and Juliet look like in the Christmas? Like, we don't want the tragedy, or we can, right? But really started broadening your mind to just think, instead of thinking in just one way a Christmas movie is, is just looking at it as a medium, like how we look at animation as a medium. It doesn't just mean you know, a children's movie. It's like, oh no, this particular medium is helpful, best helpful to tell this story. So, you know, what would the Terminator look like at Christmas? You know, and <laughs> I mean, what that's you're, hard, right? what yeah. you're asking hard, right? is, like with the animation, it's always, why does this have to be animated? So, right, it's mm -hmm. why does this story have to be a Hallmark story? Right? Is that mm -hmm. sort of or what you're Christmas asking? Story. Or a Christmas story? Yeah. I'm enlarging it because I think a lot of times people think Christmas stories, they put them in this really like narrow box. And I'm like, actually, 
Hallmark alone did 41 Christmas movies. There are over 100 movies done <laughs> in these next two months. So there's huge opportunity. So what I'm saying is, is there a baseball story that you could set during Christmas? Like, instead of just thinking and just, oh, so if it's a Christmas movie, it must mean this. It's like, what other ways do we challenge that while, you know, bringing in warmth, while bringing in a time where human beings are learning to connect once again? That's what I mean by it. Like, so you how know, can it be a Christmas movie? Yes, can yeah. it be a Christmas movie instead of why should it? It's like, why can't it? Like, what would, what would make this work as a Christmas movie? And I think that it might, for, you know, our audience right now who are, who are listening, like, oh, I never thought that would be a great Christmas movie. Um, but I think that when we think in boxes of what we've seen for Christmas movies, because I remember the way I got a holiday in Harlem, I literally was home and I was walking like many New Yorkers do up and down the street because we pride ourselves on walking. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is a movie. I haven't seen this movie. I need to write this movie. Um, instead of I, I haven't seen this movie, they'll never make my movie. It was, I need to make sure the story is told. Because uh, I, I enjoyed it. Like, it wasn't yeah, like, yeah, yeah, That's yeah. That's good advice. I would want to see this. This is awesome. So All that, right, I want to move. I want to make sure we have time to get to your screenwriting teacher brain as well here, because I think a lot of our listeners and myself included want to hear your perspective um, on some of these uh, developing your story areas that you wanted to talk about. Um, you know, how do we, you know, how do you identify a movie? It was one thing that you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. I, one of the things that I, I that I see a lot um, with my students we work on is really how do you know you have a movie versus a book uh, versus a novel? And one of the things that um, I teach beginning screenwriting and advanced screenwriting in Santa Monica College, and just understanding that in a in a screenplay in a movie you have to have an externalized goal. So, for example. If you want to be happy, you, you want to have joy, what does joy look like in that moment? Is it reconnecting? Is it going back home again? Is it taking a picture with someone that you love and you have to establish what whatever it is your, your protagonist is looking for and see if that can actually be visualized within the story setting. And what happens a lot, particularly my beginning screenwriters, is they don't know. They don't see, they don't think of the the physicality of idealizing whatever that emotion is. And if you kind of don't want that, if you want it to be completely internal, because some people are internal, then it might not be, it might be a novel, which is great because it's beautiful, it's graphic, but there's so much that is happening internally and within the character that you should probably write that first before writing a film because you have to externalize a movie. How does that look? How do we see it? Um, and if you, if you can't see it yet, then that's fine. It's just, it's, it, it may be a movie. It may not be there yet. It might have to go through other meetings before it happens, but you have to identify it. You cannot have a whole television show or feature where you're just in your mind and not physicalize what it looks like to be in your mind. Right. But, and then you mentioned, you've mentioned in the past that, you know, there's a difference though between the setting and the character's drive and want that, you know, and that beginning yes. writers can get that mixed up too. Yes. That's another thing I hear. I had this great idea for a movie and it's like, oh, let me hear it. And it's like, um, it takes place, you know, in on July the 4th. And it's like, that's great. What's the movie? It's, you know, it's, it's, it's in LA. It's on July the 4th. It's like a really big thing. Like, yeah, that, wonderful like you have a location and you you have a date now i okay but what what is the plot what is the event like and and then i always say like when i when i was on set for a holiday in harlem it was it was great to just be around um young writers who were doing other things um being grips uh you know doing transport and them saying they have a story like, oh, I had a story about, I know the people who did this bank robbery. Okay, that's great. So what's the story about the bank robbery? Like, is it um, Cain versus Abel? Is it Hamlet? Is it is it Macbeth? Like that's going to make it a movie. Like, and take something, Be feel free to take one of the plot devices that we're really familiar with because once you put that on your setting and your events with your characters, it's gonna shift, but it's gonna give you something to work from. So that's one of the, a second way that I really am like, how do you know you have a movie? Like you have a plot, like, is it, and you don't want to do the cheesy version. Like when people are always like, 
you know, I have a, this is my three second pitch, but it actually does help to have an idea of, you know, well, this is Hamlet set during this particular time. And then you're doing a motorcycle world and then you have Sons of Anagram and you're like, wow, that came out pretty good. Like I didn't, I didn't realize that, but huh, that makes sense. And it can kind of go in a different direction. Well, and it's so funny because you've been working the business for years and all of a sudden get that banged on your head. Like, oh my God, I, I, I've put too many in here, right? That's the thing that I do. I, I have the setting, I have the location, I have, I know what kind of movie it is genre wise. I know it's ensemble. And then, well, there is just too many other things in here. Like it, because my brain throws, throws, throws. And it's like, sometimes it's making it simple. Like what is that simple want? And is that simple want driving the shifts of the acts? Is it changing? But meaning you can't like start throwing other wants in there or that want breaks into, you know, multiple wants. Like it's literally finding that beautiful, simple want or that thing, like you said, Hamlet, whatever that 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 grit is inside the character, right? That is trying to get worked out, that that opposition inside them, or whatever. But so yes, doing that three second pitch, I think I was at a at a Sundance lab in the producers lab once as a mentor, and one of the mentors said, "Oh, you're doing Scarface in a high school," and I was like, "Oh my God, they're doing Scarface in a high school." That's and it just it it helped everybody there help that person talk about what they were doing because we all suddenly understood what they wanted. Of course, it's not Scarface, but it's that it's, it does help. It does help to get your brain. It it does help. It's not to reduce it, but it is to kind of give us a a brief conceptualization of what it looks like that you can move forward with it because it's going to shift. Right. So it's not to be formulaic, but it is a form and it helps us understand context. It gives some sort of context for people to give you notes. Right. Like, uh, yeah, it's really important. Um, I want to ask, uh, like, Scarface in high school, right? Oh, I get that. And I know there's a big, it's always been in, right? Or maybe, I don't know, the whole like, it's this meets this. It's this in this world, right? We talk about it in terms of setting tone. We talk about it instead of sort of selling it. Like there's so many different ways to talk about it, right? So I'm curious what your thoughts are about that in terms of setting that for a potential audience or in a pitch. Well, I, I think that when I came out um, and I had a lot of the, uh, the heat, the, the media heat at the time, I was, I was told that I had a great voice. <laughs> and so what I understand that means is that I didn't know plot, but I knew character. And so what I've really been working on as a teacher and really understanding is plot. So I found that you can do such meets, meets, meets this. Um, but for me, I wanna make sure I get what the understanding of what the plot is. So for me saying, okay, is this set in here? That opens me up to say, okay, so I know the want, I know the need, I know the opposition without having to, to, to say it. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's Cain versus Abel, it's Scarface, am I my brother's keeper? It's all of that other stuff, but I get to contain it. And so I would say to, if it's this means that, it can, it can go a whole bunch of different ways. So if that works for you, that's fine, but understand that you, that, for me at least, uh, and what I really try to encourage my students, it's really hard to be simple. It's kind of like, you know, people say, if you can get the log line, you have your, your story. And that's one of the, the last um, exercises I have my students do every semester is actually, okay, you've written, a, you've written the short, now write the log line. And if they can't write the log line, the movie isn't ready. The script isn't ready because they don't know what it is yet. You know, so it's like, that's my check. That's my balance. Well, it's so funny because sometimes people will say, especially for shorts or for anything, an indie film, they'll be like a log line. That's the whole point. It's an indie film. It cannot be log lined. And my friend, Sheila Hanrahan Taylor used to go, well, you know, it's going to be in a, a, a film festival booklet. So people are going to be going through that booklet and deciding what they're going to go see. So your log line is why they're going to go see it. And I'm looking on the Academy app at all the short films. And boy, I just wish I could help some of those people with their log lines because they don't make me want to watch that movie. Like, it's literally like, oh, that's so, like, what? What is that? Or or it's literally like the most depressing day of her life. Oh, and you're like, oh man, tune me in. Uh, But you know, it's, you have to have some, you do have to be able at some point, even if you're an indie filmmaker to boil it down. What's the freaking line on your poster? Like it, it, other people are going to do it for you if you don't do it. And I totally agree with you, Monique. You might as well do it to help yourself know, do you have it yet? Because within that log line is the want, the need, the theme, the why, all of it, all of it can be in there. Um, I also want to make sure we get to inclusive storytelling versus diverse storytelling. 
Yes, I'm really happy that you're bringing that up. Um, you, you'll see diversity and inclusion. And I think that those are two completely different things. Um, and I'm really, I'm a fan of inclusive storytelling because I think it's, and it's actually, I was, uh, when I did my due diligence on Hallmark and looking at Wanya Lewis, it was, she was like, how do we make this more, how do we make the stories at Hallmark more reflective of what American society looks like? And if we do that, then there is no main and then divergence of where things come from, which is diverse. Diverse assumes that there's one way, main way to do it, and then we diverge from that. And that creates a lot of, it can create a lot of tension and animosity if, where if you're not what the main looks like, you feel like, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna fight to, that, that this perspective is heard. And then if you're the main, you can be like, well, I don't want this because this is, you're, you're, this is the main and you're diverging. When you're, if it's inclusive, it's like, no, 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 there's not one way to tell this story or one experience to have. This is the this is the inclusive vision of this world. So it's that's important. Is it, you know, am I tossing a salad or am I having a gumbo? I want a gumbo. I want everything to to why is there it can merge together and it's all a part of the gumbo. Everything works within the gumbo. And you can't say, no, your story isn't right. This is how it is, and we'll we'll tolerate this. Um, but it's not from the center. So I can you really give any examples just to illuminate the difference between diverse versus inclusion? I'm sorry. Um, so diverse, if I'd say, you know, there's one main way to, to so have. Like, is it like a movie? Are there movies you can reference or like, or, um, or is this more about when you're creating and kind of the decisions that you're making? When does this come up for you personally? Or is it about the decision makers? Is it about the buyers? Okay, so if, if it's diverse, it would be, say, friends and living single, right? Living single was actually created first, and it actually influenced friends. However, in our society, once friends was on NBC, and it had its, you know, six white stars, it became the norm. It was the main and living single was diverse storytelling. And it's not, they're both inclusive means that they're both equal. They both belong in the canon of what 90s New York friendships look like. Gotcha. It's othering, right? The othering, yes. Yeah. Diversity yeah. Can, can other things, or you feel like you need to, I don't feel like I need to prove my worth, my, my, my value, my experiences, or my value and experiences, and you might not be aware of them, but it's time to, for you to learn more about them. And it will help us all grow. Like it's great storytelling expands us all. Is there something to Monique, just to help me understand where like diversity feels like an obligation. Like when you see it, it's like the studio noted something and all of a sudden we're like squeezing square pegs into round holes that feel like dutiful or obligatory. Whereas inclusive storytelling, all of these beautiful cultural decisions you're making bow down to the story you're telling, kind of? Mm -hmm. um, yes, I think that a lot of times with diversity, you feel tolerance, right? And as someone who went through a lot of diversity programs, it was, they stop, it's a bottleneck. It's like you got all this talent and then it stops and then you don't get past mid-level or upper level because they were being diverse. When it's inclusive, it's like, hey, let's look at the market. Let's look at what the demographics say, the kind of storytelling that they want to hear. And I think uh, a recent report said that Hollywood lost like $1.4 billion for, that's what racism costs the industry, just in terms of um, the audience and how much they could make and the types of just, just everything that could happen. And once you realize that, it's like, what stories aren't we seeing as a result of this? This is actually something that is, um, that's restricting all of us. Like I just, I just read something. Uh, one of my friends who on Facebook, one of my friends, um, she posted something yesterday about Veterans Day, and her uncle was actually, um, you know, at Normandy, and so she asked her uncle, "Hey, you know, are you going to go see this Tom Hanks movie at, at the time?" And he was like, "No, I was there." And what happened was they didn't want the black soldiers to get there first. So they kept us on the boat. And what happened is that all the white soldiers went and they got killed. So it's like, so racism is literally killing us. Literally. We have soldiers who died in, war, in World War II because they didn't want the black soldiers to, to say they, they, they were there first. 
Um, and then when we really start understanding the toll that it's taking on human lives to hold to this very narrow perspective, it's this, this, this is killing us, guys. This is killing us and what we need to move forward with as a, as a society. So, yeah, when she said that story, I was like, wow, that's just so mind blowing. Like that's racism literally kills not just black people, but literally <laughs> white, people, white, white soldiers, too. I love your brain, Monique, because and it's because I know you so well for so many years that the because um, I, I, I really love this, that the spiritual, creative creator in you can talk about the lives lost to this. And the producer in you is like, man, we're missing one hundred and six billion dollars. Like, come on, wake up. Like, it's both parts are like, I just love that. How, how do you want to look at this? Because I can look at this in a lot of different ways. It's just so I, I so appreciate your brain can can how it can hold uh, such perspectives, all trying to, uh, you know, communicate what you're trying to communicate, which it's super clear now. And thank you so much for delving so deeply into that. Much. Really, it's really, thank you. it doesn't have to be either or it can be both and that's what I, yes, yes. I, that it's amazing. It's amazing. Um, well, we're going to wrap up with three questions that we ask all of our, uh, guests. Um, I'll start. What brings you the most joy when it comes to writing? Losing myself in the moment. Like when you lose time and I'm like, oh my gosh, I just lost time. I like that a lot. Yeah, that's great. Okay, now it's my turn. What pisses you off about writing? Lorraine, it's what you talked about this week. It's when you're sitting there and that anxiety fills you and it's like you're doing it. And it's like, once you finish, you just feel so empty, but not just empty. You feel depressed on top of the empty and you just don't know what to do. Yeah, that. And yes, like that. also that. Yes, <laughs> sames. We're sames. Sames, yes. <laughs> sames. yes. Yeah. Um, and finally, Monique, um, up to this point in your career, because obviously there's so much more that you have to do, but up until this point, what's a scene that you would most like to be remembered for? when people talk about your legacy as a writer? Oh gosh, it's still unfolding. Can we not do that yet? I don't yeah, know. That's, that's fair. Okay, let's do this because that's fair. It, we're all going to watch your movie that's coming out today when this is aired on Sunday. Can you tell us what scene you're most proud of in that movie? Yes, so that's, I'll, I'll do that one. So um, one of the, one of the another thing that Hallmark was, uh, is really trying to do is to show different types of love and not just a sexualized love, whether it's heterosexual love or same-sex love. It is the way we love each other as family. And so in a holiday in Harlem, it's more than it just about the best friends reuniting and seeing whether or not they should be a couple. It's really the heart of the story is about a woman who is not able to commit to a relationship or to love until she learns to heal from the wounds of her parents' divorce. And so that scene for me is epitomized in the mac and cheese scene. Now, if uh, mac and cheese, as many, I didn't know there was this great documentary on Netflix. It's a mac and cheese was actually created by James Hemings, Sally Hemings' brother when he was with Thomas Jefferson um, in the 1700s. And it might've existed, but the way we know it in, the, in, the, in America, in the United States macaroni pie, James Hemings brought it back and he created this dish. And so mac and cheese has always been a really, really big dish in the African-American community. And it's different than just getting a craft box um, because what it does is it conveys culture. And there's, there's this one thing with the grandmother, Mama Belle, the mother, and our, and our lead Jasmine are, the mother Barbara and, and Jasmine are, um, they're connecting and Jasmine is really figuring out that home is actually where she's wanna be. She's jet setted, but home is actually where she wants to be. And they're like, do you want, sh is she ready? And it's, it all takes place over mac and cheese. And it's this beautiful montage and it's, it's so loving and it's so, so fun and so rich. And it was, it's really that, that three generations of love that actually empowers her to be ready to move forward in her life. So that's my favorite scene. I mean, this uh, is already my favorite movie and I haven't I seen it yet. I'm, so I'm literally crying. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's trauma healing with yes. mac and cheese and a montage and a rom-com. Like, oh my God, like, I can't wait. Ultimate comfort food, right? I mean, yes. I, I cannot wait for Sunday. I, know. I mean, yay, tonight. tonight. Um, <laughs> yeah, tonight. 
Um, so thank you so much, uh, Monique, uh, for coming on the show. It has been uh, educational and emotional and all the wonderful things. Um, yeah, thank you and, so much. Amazing. And uh, audience, please watch A Holiday in Harlem, which airs tonight, um, which is Sunday, November 14th. At on, eight o'clock on Hallmark, <laughs> on Hallmark, and, and and on the West Coast where we are, or is five p.m. So oh, great. ah, okay. Okay, so make sure to check okay. it out. So basically, and, just check your directory. Okay, <laughs> just go to Hallmark and check your guide. Like yes, absolutely. <laughs> and thanks for tuning in. If you haven't yet, join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash the screenwriting life and also please drop us a review on apple Podcasts. you know jeff wants a thousand reviews we are we're gonna we're gonna lower that down to 500, 500. I, know, listen, I know you guys are out there listening i know you are and every time you listen you're like i love this i gotta write that review eventually now go to it right now because we need it in order to get the show up in the search uh and and how people can find us remember you are not alone and keep writing Thank you so much to Monique for such a wonderful show. Um, the way I would describe Monique is just kind of undeniable. Um, I can't wait to see what you do next, Monique. And we're so excited for Holiday in Harlem. Again, that airs tonight at 8 p.m. on Hallmark. Um, I know we have a lot of Hallmark fans in the audience. And speaking of our audience, you all really help us with the show when you write these five-star Apple Podcast reviews Megan Lorian just mentioned. Um, to honor your wonderful writing, I'm going to read a couple right now, starting with Robert Rev, who says, So grateful for this podcast. I recently started working on my puke draft of a true crime story that I've been developing off and on for over 10 years. Listening to this podcast has been my therapy and exactly what I needed to buckle down and write. So much useful information about screenwriting and quieting that inner voice that tries to bring me down. Cheers to you, Jeff, Meg, and Lorian. Robert Rev, uh, I love true crime, and I can't wait to see what you whip up. All right, Steve0827 says, Meg and Lorian are the types of writers I wish I'd had when I was in college. While I got the fundamentals, it was all very analytical, all based on formatting and what was the current trend. These two amazing writers bring me to a place of thinking of the emotionality of a story. This also serves as pseudotherapy because so much of what I think on a daily basis is what Megan Lorian do as well. I'll identify so much that I have to stop myself from getting emotional and crying in the middle of work, which is where I predominantly listen. It does a great help to let me know that I'm not the only person who goes on this journey. Please, please give this show a chance and you won't regret it. Steve0827, thanks for being vulnerable with us and sharing that. Um, I too often get emotional when I hear Megan Lorian uh, open up, and um, there is something so almost spiritual about the way they talk about the writing process, and I really respect that part of our show as well. So thanks for sharing. All right, finally, Jay Circus says, I love the vulnerability that Meg, Lorian, and Jeff bring to every episode. Sitting down to write is so hard, and they give wonderful insight that makes me feel like I'm not alone in this journey. Their interview skills also allow the guests to open up in ways that give the audience wonderful nuggets of gold. Thanks for taking the time to make this show. Uh, it's truly our pleasure, and thanks for listening. Um, it's a two-way street. We really appreciate your contribution. Um, this is your last chance before our first Patreon workshop to sign up. So this upcoming Wednesday, uh, we have our first Patreon workshop. It'll be a virtual Zoom Q&A. And if you have questions about what Patreon is or how to sign up, I put together a Q&A in the Facebook group. So definitely check it out there. And of course, until next week, happy writing.